think we have some consensus that maybe the lack of antitrust enforcement has been going on too long and we're beginning to have some problems that need to be addressed. This is episode 250 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. In this week's episode, Christopher talks with Gary Reback, attorney and author. Gary's been called the protector of the marketplace and the antitrust champion for his work representing some of Silicon Valley's best-known companies. Gary and Christopher talk about antitrust, concentration of power, and the different ways shifts in antitrust enforcement negatively impact both consumers and the market as a whole. Let's get to it. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell, and today I'm speaking with Gary Reback, a well-known Silicon Valley lawyer. Welcome to the show, Gary. Thank you. I'm excited to have you on the show. Uh, You're well known for being very involved in getting the government to sue Microsoft and for writing a book that actually came to me at a really good time uh, about seven years ago um, called Free the Market, Why Only Government Can Keep the Marketplace Competitive. Uh, Really enjoyed that book. Highly recommend it. Um, And uh, for our audience's sake, uh, we're not going to talk much about broadband in this conversation, but I think that many of these principles around competition and markets uh, apply very strongly, uh, but it's something that uh, will be sort of in the sideline. Um, So, Gary, I'm curious if we can just start with a a brief description of what you might describe as a working market before we spend the rest of our time talking about the markets that aren't working as well. So that's an important uh, question and an important point, Chris. Um, You know, we live in a capitalist system, and the whole theory of a capitalist system is that when markets are functioning properly, everybody's better off, not just a few people, but everybody's better off, and, and resources are allocated correctly, and people get what they want at uh, the best available prices and so forth. So in a, a well-functioning market, you have a bunch of buyers, and they're all competing against each other. And you have a bunch of sellers, and the sellers are all competing against each other. And then you kind of have an interface between the two groups where transactions occur and, you know, the competition among the buyers and the competition among the sellers enables exactly the most efficient transactions to occur across that interface. And that's what makes a market very, very productive. Well, with that in mind, I'm I'm just curious if you could just rattle off a couple of instances in which you've worked on areas in which those markets had broken down. A lot of the work I've done is in uh, high technology or information technology and specifically in the software markets. Um, there are some markets uh, that are called network markets. Um, like the phone system, for example, where the normal rules of economics don't really apply as well. And in these markets, whoever gets a lead tends to maintain that lead and dominate the market, particularly if they exploit their position using anti-competitive practices. So, for example, if you use a certain word processor, or if all your friends do, you really have to be on that same word processor or something compatible. You might like a different word processing program, but if everybody else is on one you don't like, you still have to use that. 
And so uh, that creates what's called a network effect or a networked externality. Those kinds of conditions make the efficient operation of markets more challenging. Uh, markets can still operate efficiently, but in those kinds of markets, we have to have good government oversight and appropriate intervention when bad things occur in order to, to maintain competition and to get the right allocation of resources. Now, when you say that, the, the, I think what you're talking about is smart policies. One of the things that I'm often criticized for by people who don't like my work as someone who I, I think of as arguing for smart government policies is a knee-jerk sense that government involvement will inevitably hurt the market and and make the market less competitive. And I'm, I'm curious how you respond, and I'm sure you run across this idea all the time as well. Sure. Uh, and one way to think about this is the difference between uh, antitrust enforcement, enforcement of the antitrust war, uh, laws, and regulation. Now, we do need regulation in, in some cases, which we can talk about. But generally speaking, antitrust lawyers think that regulation really is not quite a good approach. And it tends to have some of these bad effects that you've alluded to, but antitrust enforcement, we sometimes call it the free market approach to regulation. And let me just explain the difference for a second. Please do. Yeah. In, in a regulation situation, a group of people are, are chosen, in effect, to micromanage the industry. And they're not industry managers from the industry. They're chosen not by the shareholders. They're chosen uh, generally by political figures. And they uh, get together and manage the industry. Sometimes it's a single company that dominates an industry. And they, they manage in a rather intrusive way. They uh, tell the industry who it can sell to and at what prices, you know, where it has to invest more resources and so forth. Now, in that kind of situation, the people who criticize regulation sometimes, not always, but sometimes have a good point. Antitrust works on a different principle. The principle is this. The government sets the basic rules of competition. Then the government steps back and it lets the competitors in the market duke it out under those rules of competition. And as long as everybody obeys those rules, the government really doesn't have much of a role to play. But if somebody breaks the rules, the government doesn't try to regulate them. The government sues them and they bring them before a court and they present evidence and the judge makes the decision just as the judge would in any other prosecution of one kind or another. We find over the years that in most cases that works the best. Now, you know, there are some cases where the market won't support more than one company like the municipal, you know, water and sewage uh, facility or something like that. And there you do need regulation. And, you know, you want to make sure that pharmaceuticals are safe. And so you need regulation there and air traffic controllers, for example. But in a lot of other industries, antitrust enforcement and free market competition would work a lot better than regulation would. Well, and I think there's an interesting point in, in terms of that. In many ways, we'd like to see 
uh, many of us would like to see a government breaking up like big companies. For instance, I might name Comcast or um, or those other companies that people have uh, suggested breaking up. Uh, in your book, at one point, you had mentioned that there was, um, if the government's not able to break them up, then almost perpetual lawsuits might be preferable. Is that kind of a middle ground or is that actually just the second option that you described? Yeah, I almost described that humorously. I mean, obviously, the best thing that, uh, to happen is to maintain competition in the market. Now, you can generally maintain competition if you block anti-competitive mergers. A lot of big companies have acquired power because the government has let them acquire competitors. Or uh, in the case of certain broadband companies, to acquire content providers, for example, and use that uh, as a market advantage that excludes uh, competitors at both levels of competition. I, I don't know that, that I'd go the perpetual lawsuit route until I'd exhausted other things, but you don't have to start at breaking up the company. Where you need to start is not letting the company acquire market power, either through anti-competitive things that it does, like exclusionary contracts or something like that, or through mergers that increase its market power in a way that consumers don't benefit. And you, you labeled both horizontal and vertical mergers in that case, which you would see as both being potentially uh, damaging and le- letting a company perhaps gain too much power. Well, I certainly would. Now, traditionally, antitrust looked at horizontal mergers uh, with greater scrutiny than vertical mergers. And uh, as the conservatives began to take power in the antitrust area through what's called the Chicago School that I think your, your listeners have heard about before, they de-emphasized antitrust scrutiny of vertical mergers and just focused on horizontal mergers. So the consequence is that I think most people would agree that too much horizontal power through mergers is a very bad thing. We've come to understand through better research, though, that these vertical acquisitions can also create enormous problems. Uh, It's a bigger push, though, to get a conservative administration to take action in the vertical arena because, generally speaking, they don't quite understand how the market mechanisms are being affected because if it's a vertical acquisition, you're affecting several different markets in the same supply chain, and the analysis becomes more complicated. Nevertheless, I think these days, at least people on on the cutting edge of antitrust would say we haven't paid nearly enough attention to vertical mergers. Well, I think it's interesting you mentioned sort of the present day where uh, we are seeing a lot more attention. Um, you, you mentioned in our previous discussion uh, as we were preparing for this that uh, Elizabeth Warren and others are getting very involved um, You also, I know, have a deep sense of the history behind anti-monopoly movements. And my impression is is that this is not something that we would expect to come from one party, but rather kind of a piece of each party working together to try and uh, decentralize uh, power, ultimately. I think so. You know, of course, our problem, Chris, is that the two parties don't seem to be able to work on much of anything these days in Washington. They don't work together on much of anything. But... What we've seen over the last several years is people on both the left and the right, political figures, beginning to ask hard questions about um, whether U.S. industries have become too concentrated. 
uh, and not just the industries that I work in, but industries more generally? Are, is there too much market power in just a few companies? And certainly, a lot of that is focused on the high-tech industries. And it's not just Elizabeth Warren, Senator Elizabeth Warren, who would be left of center, uh, but it's also, you know, uh, some of the conservatives from places like Utah are also focused on these kinds of questions. And so for the first time in a long time, I think we have some consensus, at least among people who are looking at this area, that maybe the lack of antitrust enforcement has been going on too long and we're beginning to have some problems that need to be addressed. Well, I think that's uh, where we'd like to push toward the end of the show is most people think of Monopoly and they think, oh, I'm going to have to pay more when I buy something. But uh, that's not the uh, that's not even the worst problem, is it? Oh, I don't I think it's not even close to the worst problem. Let me give you several several other problems that that I think your listeners would consider far more important. Uh, that too much industry concentration creates. So from an economic perspective, in order to raise prices, what a monopolist or a, a duopolist, you know, a concentrated industry does is it restricts output. And if you want a present-day example of that, think about these big airline uh, mergers that have gone on in the last several years. Uh, you know, United Continental and American U.S. Airways, I mean, we're down to the point that there are only a few major airlines in the United States. Now, the consequence of that is, of course, higher prices in terms of all the fees they, uh, they can impose. But a bigger consequence is that you can't get a seat on a flight when you need it anymore. And this has particularly affected small and mid-sized cities uh, across the country. And certainly on the West Coast, uh, we have this problem in spades. Uh, in order to keep the high prices, the, the few companies in the market uh, uh, simply restrict the availability of their service. So that, to me, uh, is, is a bigger problem than the fact that you may have to pay more. You just can't get it at all. So that's one problem. We'll call that output. The second problem is that the effect of monopoly on innovation. You know, we all benefit from lower prices, but we benefit a lot more when there's some breakthrough innovation in high tech or in pharmaceuticals or something like that. So our antitrust policy really ought to be directed at protecting innovation. Now, the problem is that a monopolist would use some of its market power to maintain its monopoly you know, to keep itself from being displaced by some new technology. And it would do things to try to restrict a challenger's ability to get to market by, you know, engaging in exclusive contracts or, or by denying access in one way or another. And so the net result of all that is that we're denied the new technology that the challenger would bring to market. Let me give you a couple of examples. So back, you know, a couple decades ago, Microsoft used anti-competitive practices against a company called Netscape that had invented the browser and actually ended up putting Netscape out of business. So that's an example where they tried 
not just to, to hurt the competitor, but to co-opt the technology so that they would own the browser market. You actually, in your book, you described how Microsoft went to Netscape and basically made them an offer that said, basically, we won't kill you if you don't compete with us. If you only put your, your browser on other platforms that are non-PCs, we'll have the PCs, you'll have everything else, and everyone will be happy. I mean, so they were very deliberate and open about it. Yes. And obviously, some of the Microsoft uh, people contest the facts in terms of exactly what they said and so forth. But from the perspective of the government's case, that's right. Uh, uh, the monopolist came in and said, look, you can you can live on an island and you can have whatever that island brings to you and we'll just have the rest of the world. And won't won't that be fine? And uh, of course, that won't be fine. Um, so if you think back 10 or 15 years ago, um, Microsoft owned the browser market. And the only way you could get to Google, for example, is by going, going through Microsoft. You know, 98% of Google's traffic came from Microsoft. And so if you type www.google.com on the browser line, Microsoft didn't have to send you to Google. It could have put up a big red warning and said, hey, this, this uh, site has been reported as stealing your personal information. Don't go there. <laughs> and, of course, no one would have gone there, and they would have killed Google in the cradle. They would have suppressed search technology, which all of us use every day. Why didn't they do that? They were already being fined billions of dollars by the European Commission. They ran the risk of reigniting the antitrust scrutiny in the United States. So they didn't do it. And as a result, we all benefited by this new technology. I just found this really worth noting, the compulsory licensing response, another way in which I think people might not necessarily immediately think of that as a response to uh, these antitrust problems. But you talk about the history of compulsory licensing, uh, particularly around patents and things like that, to basically make markets work uh, to solve this problem, I think. You know, we have a long history of compulsory licensing in the United States, and uh, there was compulsory licensing of a lot of the patents that the phone monopoly had. And it, uh, we have to be careful, obviously, because you want people to innovate in patent technology. But when big companies use patents as a wall against market entry, that becomes a problem. And from time to time in past history, as, as you mentioned, the government's come in and ordered compulsory licensing. You don't see that much anymore uh, because, you know, patents have become so much more prominent and, and uh, the conservatives in particular are reluctant to intervene in the patent market. But that would be an effective way to deal with some problems as well. And in software, uh, generally speaking, the problem isn't patents, but in other places, yes, that's something really people should look at. Modern monopolies in the high-tech area uh, take all your data and uh, prepare dossiers on you, which are, uh, I don't know, from my perspective, very troublesome. I mean, I think most people understand that when they buy something online, whoever they're buying from has a record and will use that record to help them find other things. And that's, uh, I think most people would accept that. But when you have a search engine that keeps track of your searches for many, many years and combines that information with what you buy and so forth, they can begin to get at, you know, what your political orientation is, uh, you know, where you live, 
uh, on the street, what your religion is, all kinds of things that become very, very problematic. Uh, we have a problem with privacy in the United States, largely because we have several big companies that collect data across the board, and that's a problem that Europe is beginning to, to address, but in the United States, really not so much. And finally, Chris, just let me say, one of the other things we have found historically that industry concentration and monopoly does is it puts political power into the hands of monopolists because they can make political contributions. And under our law, there's a, a case called Citizens United, a Supreme Court case from seven or eight years ago that gives big corporations the right to make unlimited political contributions. And so some of the things that big tech companies want to lobby for are more or less okay by me. But other things they want to lobby for bother me a whole lot, like the lack of, of privacy protection. So using monopoly to further political power is something that's also very concerning. And that's that's one that I long find very frustrating in, in part because it's not just at the federal level. Uh, that money allows them to basically own state legislatures. Uh, they can be very powerful at the local level. It's just it's corrupting everywhere. Yes. In fact, it's much worse, I think. At least there's some visibility, a bit of visibility at the federal level. At the state level, um, there, there are projects which have sprung up in various places trying to get some daylight as to what's going on. But, you know, with the demise of, of local newspapers, for example, uh, we just don't get the kind of coverage we used to. And I agree with you, the, the effect of, of that kind of conduct at the state and local level is, is, is even more disturbing than at the national level. So speaking of the, the state and local level, do you have any recommendations for what could be done at the state and local level to try and, and uh, strike back at antitrust, even though they don't have the power to break them up and things like that? Yeah, this is a, this is a tough question, Chris, because uh, on one hand, uh, these big tech companies have gotten so big, they're multinational and so powerful – I'm not even sure a national government has the power to do much about them. I mean, I've always favored the United States working with Europe uh, to, to, to have enough power uh, to, to try to restrain these big companies. However, with, with the new administration, a number of people have now been looking to states to try to exercise some antitrust authority over these uh, companies. And there are states... You know, many of the biggest states have their own antitrust enforcement mechanisms, and they have their own antitrust laws. Now, you know, they've got to be careful because they have smaller budgets than the national government does. But they they might well be able to go after specific anti-competitive practices. So they wouldn't have the wherewithal to to do a ten-year case and break up one of these big companies, but they might be able to go into court and stop one of the big companies from doing something that's anti-competitive, that, that squelches new technology, or that hurts consumers. Certainly, a lot of people are looking at that now because we don't think we're going to get much in the way of antitrust enforcement over the next few years. Great. Well, thank you for taking the time and uh, sharing uh, some of your experiences and thoughts with us on antitrust. I appreciate you asking me, and I hope uh, 
I hope your listeners and others continue the new interest in antitrust. It's, it's time we renewed its effectiveness. That was Christopher visiting with Gary Reback, a well-known Silicon Valley attorney and author. Hey, everyone. I just wanted to thank you for listening and, and helping out uh, to create a, a stronger internet ecosystem, making sure everyone has high quality access. Uh, please tell your friends, tell others who might be interested about this show. Uh, if you have a chance to rate us on iTunes, uh, please do. Several people already have. Uh, we really appreciate all of the comments and we really appreciate you taking the time to listen to us. We have transcripts for this and other Community Broadband Bits podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter where the handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and all the other podcasts in the ILSR family on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Never miss out on our original research? Subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons, and thanks for listening to episode 250 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. (laughs) ¶¶